all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're taking your calls during the hour concerning any issues or topics that you need answered. So you can always, uh, any kind of topic that's uh, burning on your mind, uh, it doesn't have to be the topic that somebody else has brought up. Or if you want to add to that discussion, you're certainly welcome to do that. We love to have your calls live on the air. You can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And sometimes you're not uh, able to call in. We certainly realize that. want to encourage our listeners, if you have a question and aren't able to do that, that you contact us by email. And that email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. We'll take a look at that email and try to get you the answers to your questions. Uh, and then we oftentimes will, uh, particularly if we can't be live on the air, we'll uh, batch those emails together and share those with our larger audience. Uh, we'd like for everybody to sort of learn from that. That's what makes Southern Remedy great is your questions that you prompt uh, the discussion about things that are uh, bothering you or somebody close to you. Uh, if you miss our show, be sure to go to MPB Online. We do archive these programs. And uh, if you didn't catch something, maybe we realize that a lot of our listeners or the majority of our listeners are not going to be able to listen to the entire hour. Maybe you came in late on a discussion about something and want to go back and hear that entire discussion. You can do that online. Uh, just look for Southern Remedy. Uh, all of our Southern Remedy pro- programs are on there on mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a great week so far. We've got spring break coming up for a lot of people next week. And uh, my uh, trees are starting to bud out and bloom out. My plum trees and pear trees in the yard are already starting to do that, hoping we're not going to have a late freeze. But, you know, it's Mississippi. It could happen. Uh, coronavirus is certainly the news topic of the month, really more than one month. So uh, that is certainly something that we're trying to prepare for at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and across the state. State health officials are uh, already developing plans to deal with that should it uh, uh, escalate to involve Mississippi. A lot of questions about that. In fact, we've got our first uh, caller has a question about that right now. Let's go to Tom in Brandon. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Uh, yeah, this is involved. Uh, does uh, involve the coronavirus. Uh, I'm in my 70s, and I've had my pneumonia shots. Mm-hmm. My limited information from what I read says that the coronavirus mostly affects older adults and presents itself in the lungs and turns into pneumonia. So my question is, if I have the ammonia shots, am I more protected from the virus? 
Yeah, that's a common question that I hear coming up is like, what you know, if, if we do that. And the other question is, if I'm immunized, if somebody's immunized against influenza, the flu vaccine, does that protect you? Uh, it, so two answers to this. It does in individuals who are at most risk. One of the reasons why we advise uh, particularly higher risk groups uh, to be immunized against influenza and uh, the, the pneumonia shot, which that is one of the, the bigger uh, the, uh, the most common causes, uh, bacterial causes of pneumonia. So we have viruses that can cause pneumonia, and we also have bacteria that cause pneumonia. And the pneumonia shot is against pneumococcus or strep, uh, strep pneumo. And uh, there are a couple of different types of that. Right now for the general population, they're recommending just one. Now, it, it doesn't directly, neither one of those vaccines, we do not have a vaccine that directly um, protects you against coronavirus. However, there are a couple of reasons why getting a flu vaccine and or a pneumococcal vaccine or a pneumonia vaccine uh, at the appropriate age that's recommended right now is a good idea. And that is uh, that it can, number one, protect you. If you've got, if you already have pneumonia from one of those and you're exposed to coronavirus, you are at extremely high risk. You can have infections, uh, dual infections with both of those at the same time. So certainly it would protect or help protect you at that point. Uh, And then the other issue is if uh, we have a lot of patients who, you know, we got a lot of people who contract the flu uh, and a lot of people who don't get vaccinated for the flu. And that takes up a lot of uh, a lot of resources, a lot of space, a lot of protective equipment that our healthcare professionals that we use uh, to try to isolate those patients and not spread that among other hospitalized patients or ourselves. Um, that takes up those resources if you're not protected. So it makes sense to get the flu vaccine, to get the pneumococcal vaccine, just because it can protect you. Number one, from getting uh, an infection that's going to put you at a higher risk. And number two, uh, to not use up all those resources uh, should we have a lot of people that, uh, that need them from a coronavirus standpoint. Um, Tom, you know, the, the biggest things that we can do right now, uh, individuals who have traveled to certain countries, particularly right now, South Korea and uh, uh, Iran and uh, China, if you have contact with them and they have symptoms and you develop a fever, a cough or shortness of breath, that's the point where you need to call your doctor. One of the, the misconceptions about coronavirus is that everybody is going to have those severe symptoms. And uh, there are a lot of elderly uh, over the age of 70. Certainly they're at a much higher risk. If you have chronic medical conditions, particularly diabetes, uh, any type of lung disease, be that COPD or um, uh, any other chronic lung disease, uh, asthma, those are going to be individuals that have a higher risk of developing coronavirus. Uh, so isolating those uh, you know, people that are at higher risk are, is going to be key um, and getting prompt medical care. Although there's no treatment directly for coronavirus right now, Supportive care is the best thing. And by supportive care, that means if there are other infections or if there are low oxygen levels, we can give you oxygen. Uh, if you do need, you know, in the worst case scenarios, if you have, uh, you require uh, respiratory support in an ICU, we can certainly do that. But it's, it's contingent upon you seeking out medical care. A lot of people, most people with coronavirus are having mild symptoms. That does complicate the issue because if you have mild symptoms, you may not seek medical attention. So 
you may be spreading it to somebody else, but um, you know it, it, you, you're not going to necessarily have those more severe symptoms. Tom, is that I, I think I, we answered your question and gave you a little bit more there. I did have a, a little bit more later in the program to talk about coronavirus if we have time. But does that answer your questions? Yes, but you brought up a different question for me. Shoot, go ahead. Uh, We're on a roll. For, the, for those that have mild symptoms or even worse. Uh, you know, the U.S. government has repealed a lot of the Affordable Care Act and put more people uninsured. And with the state of Mississippi not expanding Medicaid, we also have more uninsured. And these are the people that generally prepare and serve our food in restaurants or stock our shelves in the grocery store or tend to our children or clean our offices. Uh, is there a plan for University of Mississippi Medical Center or the state of Mississippi that you're aware of that's going to promote those people coming in for for medical advice or medical assistance because generally they won't seek it because they can't afford it. Right. So that's a huge issue, Tom. Thank you for bringing that up. So we have a large percentage of our population in Mississippi who don't have access to care because of uh, just financial reasons, social reasons. Uh, that, and particularly during times like this, when we have something like this, can create a huge challenge uh, to treat those people. I did want to make something clear. Any hospital, if you have somebody that presents to the emergency room, uh, they cannot be turned away because of financial reasons. So they are are we are obligated to you know to treat them. And and certainly if you're severe enough. Now you mentioned mild symptoms. If you don't have a regular physician, yeah, that's one of the handicaps we have with a system that doesn't have sort of a catch basin for those those patients. I have heard a lot of discussion both uh, in state government and in Washington. Uh, just looking at the news, I know there's a lot of attention to this. There's a lot of money that's been uh, set aside for emergency uh, management. I don't know where that money's going to go. I mean, I'm not a politician, and who knows where, you know, once once people get to talking about it, where it's going to end up. But uh, that's certainly an issue that's being talked about. At UMMC, there, we have a, a disaster, and a lot of hospitals have this. So we have a, a disaster preparedness team. Uh, that is both trained and have the the availability to uh, to uh, you know to to come up with a strategy and a plan to uh, um, adequately prepare for these situations uh, as best you can for anything like this. So there is a plan going on. I know about it in my own institution the best, but. Um, uh, I, across the state, there's a lot of hospitals doing that. And the Mississippi State Department of Health, most people don't know, they send out notices to all physicians and healthcare providers in the state. Uh, so we're getting almost daily updates from them uh, that uh, have linkages to the CDC website, which is also giving uh, daily updates. So that keeps everybody in the loop uh, to, uh, you know, hopefully keep up with things so that we know what to do and how to be best prepared for it. But Tom, that's a, it's a great question. That's one that we, that's exactly why I think we need, uh, to, uh, look at that, particularly in our state. Uh, you know, our best resource is, is people and, uh, the health of our people should be first and foremost on our minds. There's many different ways to do that. And there's a lot of debate between that, but certainly that should be the end goal that we, uh, seek everybody having access to the care that they need. 
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy, Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about your health or just general health questions in general. Ah, that's too general. Sorry about that redundancy. Uh, the number you can call this morning for your questions or comments is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You can always email us. The email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to David in Horn Lake. Good morning, David. Good morning. Thanks for calling. What's your question this morning? years old, and I worked in the chemicals industry for 26 years, uh-huh. and during that time, through the workplace exposure, I've been exposed to methyl chloride, benzyl chloride, nickel catalyst, formaldehyde, caustic soda, asbestos, ammonia, glycerin, silica dust, and I've been around corrosive liquids and flammable liquid corrosives. Is I just found out one of my co-workers just been diagnosed with, uh, with uh, nasal cancer. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it seems like uh, when people get to be around my age a little older, they don't last too long. <laughs> my question to you is, uh, I'm kind of hard-headed, ain't worth two dead flies. Uh, <laughs> is there a cancer screening uh, 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 panel or a DNA test or whatever that can screen for workplace exposures to cancers? What would I go to ask for if I went to the doctor? So I think your best bet, now as far as cancer screenings go, you listed a lot of different exposure chemicals, and some of those have been associated with cancer, some of them associated with other medical problems. Um, Now, some of them are hard to detect, and some of them are more easy to detect in your system. Just because you've been exposed doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the cancer. It does mean that your risk is higher if you're exposed to substances that are known to cause cancer. So uh, it's you know there's not a a, can- a genetic test to say okay this is this is what you've been sp- exposed to there's not really a test like that um, the best that we can do right now for most of these is that you get screened for whatever you've been exposed to to see if anything's hanging around in your system some of the again some of those things are not going to be you really can't screen but you can look and and anticipate with certain types of cancers. You mentioned in your friend nasopharyngeal cancer. So that's uh, usually squamous cell uh, is a common one in that area. And almost all of those have to do with exposures. Uh, so if particularly people who smoke, if you smoke and you're, you're exposed to some of these, that can increase your risk uh, uh, even more. So here's what I would do. Um, there are occupational health is sort of this area of medicine 
Um, and there's not a whole lot of them. But if you look for that, have somebody look for it, look for it yourself, just Google it, you know, occupational health physician, and you will probably find some places that you can go to that, number one, they're going to want a list of everything that you've been exposed to, and then, number two, look at those risks and try to determine what kind of screening. And it's not just a one-time screen either. If, if you're exposed to some of these and you do have a cancer risk, that's going to be something that you continue. You'll need to know what to look out for, and then your physician or healthcare provider needs to know what to look for so that they can follow you over time uh, and try to try to catch things early. With a lot of cancers, if we catch them early, uh, they can be treatable. They can sometimes be curable, um, but early detection is important. So, David, you mentioned you might be a little hard-headed. I'm not saying that you did, uh, but that and nobody wants to do that when you're feeling just fine, you know, and just be bopping along in life. But I, that's what I would do. If you can't find a uh, in a, around around the Horn Lake area, you should be able to find somebody though, and uh, uh, not too far away. But if if you can't find anybody, go to your regular physician and just tell them they can look it up. In today's world, it's easy to just plug all those things into a uh, a, a uh, exposure database, and they can give you that. Um, we do have a toxicology. Um, uh, that uh, uh, service at UMMC that um, physicians can call into. Most major universities are going to have that too. Um, and, you know, those are mainly for uh, um, acute exposure, something that happens uh, fairly recently. But they can help out, you know, sort of point physicians in different directions uh, moving forward. But occupational health doctor is going to be the person that is really the the one to to go to. Some bigger businesses already have that, um, particularly in cases where there are exposures like this. And you probably know there's, you know, OSHA guidelines, and you've you've got to have a, a, a safety data sheet on everything that you have there, and everybody needs to be trained. But even then... Sometimes you're exposed to things. And, David, I, I experienced, I worked for the Corps of Engineers for a year in Vicksburg, and we had to do baseline testing because I was in the Environmental Sciences Division. We did, had to do baseline testing uh, to test for, in particular, heavy metals and um, uh, other compounds, some of the ones you mentioned, too, uh, just sort of as a baseline. And then we would know, at, you know, if something happened, sort of what those levels would do. I don't know if you had that uh, where you were working, but... That might be something, too, useful if you could get your hands on that so that somebody could compare what it looks like now to then. Okay. Uh, uh, especially, like, at Nickel Catalyst, yep. I remember if they had specifically had warning labels, this can cause nasal and lung cancer, and some of the chemicals that I listed were, were known carcinogenic. Right. And uh, do you know of any uh, uh, monitoring or evaluation programs like the OSHA EPA that would be valuable to, you know, Long-term exposed employers like, you know, employees or ex-employees like myself? They do exist. It depends on, you know, what what chemical or what substance you're talking about that you were exposed to. I I think that occupational health person would be the ones to point you in those directions and you could dig for a little bit of those resources for you. Um, But, yeah, there are some of those. It just sort of depends, and some of those are linked to, you know, sometimes there are foundations that come out of, you know, either – uh, lawsuits or other th- other programs to where you can tap into that for monitoring, um, but it's sort of specific to what was the substance that you came into contact with. Okay, thank you so much. All right, thank you for calling, David. 
This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. You can uh, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Timothy in Louisiana. Good morning, Timothy. Good morning. I have a statement and a question. Sure. My statement is I, I'm 68 years old, and I've worked uh, in a lot of different jobs, and only once in my entire life, working life have I ever had an MSDS training on anything. Wow. You know, and, yeah. and that was a farmer who uh, was very, you know, important. You know, he, he was very conscientious about his hands handling chemicals. You right, know? right. And and he did, he did it regularly, you know, but nowhere else. And I, I've worked in all kinds of businesses, you know. Yeah, I, and I used to work, uh, you know, in in residential construction uh, on during the summers, working for my grandfather, and um, and then on uh, some golf courses too, you know, mowing and spraying oh, stuff. Yeah. And so I'm sure I got exposed. <laughs> and you know, I, you know, I'll have to say. Uh, some of those had better training. Certainly, I, I can say about this about the Corps of Engineers. It was pretty rigorous training as far as you know up front. Uh, there were there was a lot of safety involved. And we do that at the at UMMC. You know, particularly if you're involved in things, we have ongoing training too that we do yearly, uh, depending on yep. you know for if you're exposed to that. Yeah, so that's the exception rather than the rule. I'm yeah, I think unfortunately, I think you're probably right. And my question is about macular degeneration. I'm experiencing it in my right eye. Uh-huh. And um, I'm wondering, I saw uh, that they have these vitamins that are pricey that they say will help. And I wonder if you have any experience with that. Yeah, I've seen that. So uh, do you have wet or dry? Which Do you know which form you have? No, I do not. Okay. So, so one, and that's just, that's more detail oriented, but, um, so uh, yeah, you can see a lot of these, uh, vitamins or even, you know, regimens and ophthalmologists will sometimes tell you, Hey, I think you ought to be taking this. There are different vitamins that, uh, are important for your ocular eye health. Um, you know, vitamin E, vitamin A, certainly those are, are important. There's not a whole lot of good data on that when you drill down, but most of the time, if you find one or if you I would ask your ophthalmologist and say, hey, I'm interested in doing something in addition to what you're talking about doing to treat it uh, to help out and not you know lose any more vision. What can I do? They may uh, they will probably have some recommendations and they're going to be able to tell you what is too much. Because some of those things can have too much of uh, those substances that might harm you or other stuff, substances that are in there. So I think they can guide you a little bit in that. There are a lot of them out there. That some of them are like eye health or macular degeneration health. If you Google it, you're probably going to get a ton of stuff. Yes, 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 yes. But uh, I would check I with... For hands-on, honest uh, assessment. Yeah, know? yeah. I don't trust salespeople. Well, that's true. There's different motivations there, right? So they're looking to for to get a good profit margin, and uh, you want something that's going to affect your health. So, so what I do is I talk to. There's a couple of pharmacists that I'm in, in in contact with that are familiar with these, and that's sort of their, you know, professional hobby is to look look after that. I always call them up or send them an email and say, Hey, what do you think about this project a product uh, that a patient brings in and ask questions about. Um, because there's so many of them and you, it's hard to keep up too, but I'd ask your ophthalmologist number one. And, 
um, just to make sure it's safe is the biggest question I always ask. If it is safe, and even if it doesn't have a lot of data that it's going to, there's no big trials out there that show that it improves your eye health or, or uh, ocular um, visual acuity uh, over time. If it's not going to cause any problems, it's you know worth a try just to see if uh, if you can take it. That's been my approach for most either supplement supplements or you know over the counter remedies. Uh, first of all, let's talk about safety, and then if it's safe, um, you know by all means try it and see. Maybe you should add a pharmacology day to your weekly program you know we used to we used to have debbie minor was on and she was a a clinical uh pharmacist um so um but uh, you know any these days there are lots of databases that have a lot of these products there uh you might want to check with your pharmacist your local pharmacist that first i think that'd be a good first step all right i will do that thank you for suggesting all right, Timothy. You, for, you know, I, I gotta say this before I hang sure up. go ahead. I just love MPB. It's, you know, I live in Louisiana, but I support MPB and listen to it because you're just so much better than Louisiana Public Radio. <laughs> well, thank you, Timothy. I appreciate that. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, taking your calls. Got lots of good questions this morning. Plenty of time for you to call in, though. Uh, squeeze some, a lot. Well, actually, a good many more calls in. So give us a call this morning, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You know, I, sometimes I'll talk to people either in clinic, say, hey, I listen to your radio show. I got questions that I want to call in with, but I just don't feel like it's something that, you know, needs to be asked on the air. Don't feel like there are any unnecessary. There's no stupid questions. I mean, if it's important to you, I guarantee you it's important to somebody else. So not only are you answering, uh, hopefully I'm answering uh, your questions, but probably we're answering somebody else's too. So uh, just keep that in mind when you're uh, when you're calling in. So uh, and uh, also email us if uh, something comes up after the program or maybe you're not able to call. You can always sort of file that away and then email us separately. We do respond directly to those. The email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. All right, let's go to Chris in somewhere in Mississippi. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Thank you for having me. Um, I spent a year as a teacher with a ceiling panel removed above my desk. Mm-hmm. At the end of the year, I was asked to cover everything in my classroom because they were going to do an asbestos removal 
Um, and one of those places was um, above my desk where that open panel was. So I'm wondering, you know, should I be concerned about exposure to it? Uh, were you in the area while they were doing that, or did you did they do it and then they took everything? You know, it, it was it was done over the summer, but you know that panel over my desk was you know just open for the whole year, and, and I guess oh, I'm I see. for my my former students as right. well. Yeah, it, you know, were we at any risk? Yeah, so so that's a great question. Comes up with asbestos all the time. So asbestos is used. Uh, it was used a lot for, as a flame retardant. It's very lightweight, very durable, uh, in a lot of different substances. Um, it, unfortunately, if it's aerosolized, like if there is dust, if you're sanding it, or if you're breaking apart the fa- the panels, as everybody who's ever looked at it or, or worked with it and seen pictures of it, you know that it's very fibrous and brittle. So it, when that, that those fine dust particles, it's almost like little needles in the air. So if you breathe those in, they lodge in the airways and they stay there. And uh, particularly in people who smoke, that's the, the biggest risk of, of cancer. And there's a particular cancer that's more common with it. And it's mesothelioma is the fancy name for it. It's a type of, of lung cancer in and around the tissues of the lung. Um, the lot now it depends on where that asbestos came from. If it's in the ceiling or in the floor, and you don't mess with it, most of the time you don't get any exposure. It's just in the demolition of that. Even if it's an open place, if you're not, if it's not actively has something rubbing up against it to where you're aerosolizing that and breaking it off. Same thing with floors because it's in flo- a lot of flooring. Um, until you actually do the demolition, that's the point where the exposure happens. Uh, it's not if it's, you know, in those in those substances and you're right next to them or walking on them or, as you said, an open panel. Probably very little exposure during that time period. It's really in the demolition and the remodeling of that when you, uh, when you do aerosolize, which is why they, as you said, you know, they ask you to cover up everything. So usually they cover everything up. They're very oh, yeah. careful, of, right, because all that dust gets everywhere. And it, those little needles, it's very interesting. Like they, they, it's almost like they're sort of punching into cells, and they're introducing DNA in there that sort of causes cancer. Uh, a lot of other reasons for it. That's an oversimplification of it. But um, certainly it's something that a lot of people used to be exposed to, and we still have, you know, if you look at, at what has to happen, uh, in demolition or remodeling, uh, certainly in commercial buildings, that's a big risk and it's a big cost too with, uh, with people remodeling. But if it's in some, you know, if it's in the floor, walls, ceiling tiles, and nobody's doing anything with that, that's probably okay. Oh, did we lose yeah, you, Chris? Uh, the, the only question that I had, uh-huh. um, I, I did end up, um, by January with flu and pneumonia at the same time. And uh-huh. I was kind of thinking about that um, while I was waiting um, for my turn on the call. So um, I'm, I'm happy to uh, to hear what, what you said. But, but again, you know, even with that, uh, should, should still be no cause for concern. Just a coincidence. Yeah, right now, particularly in Mississippi, it's, it's really low risk. There are 13 states right now that are poor. You know, as of today, I checked it before I came in this morning to the studio, uh, that are reporting um, either a a coronavirus like illness with all the risk factors, or um, or. Yeah, maybe we'll 
Oh, are you there? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was hearing a little bit of background. So there are 13 states right now, about 80 individuals that have either tested positive or are being investigated with symptoms of coronavirus. Um, most of those states, if you look at the southeast, Georgia has a few and Florida has a few, and that's that's it right now. Uh, probably we're going to see this spread. Um, certainly areas that have more people in it are going to be the highest risk. The states right now with the largest number of individuals are Washington State and California. Um, and, uh, you know, there have been a, uh, right now nine deaths from this. Um, but if you haven't come into contact with anybody from China right now or, or that, you know, has been in contact with somebody who's had a documented coronavirus, you're at extremely low risk. Um, and as far as getting the pneumonia and flu, those are things that go hand in hand. Um, certainly um, that you can have both of those at the same time. Sometimes people get the flu, flu and then they get a bacterial infection on top of that because of the infection in the lung sort of weakens that natural processes of clearing out those bacteria uh, and fighting off those bacteria. Um, if As long as you're recovered, Chris, uh, what, how, how old are you? Uh, I'm 45. This was back in 2000. Uh, I guess in January of 2005 when I, I came down with the flu and pneumonia. And oh, okay. Same year, um, you know, I, I, I told you that I spent with that year with that open panel. So, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a chemist, so, you know, I, I need to be careful with asbestos, but uh, I, I don't know, you know, a great deal about biology, which was uh, what prompted me to call. Yeah, sure. At this point, if you've recovered symptomatically, I, you should be okay. I mean, you should be fairly low risk that I, I wouldn't just totally take a, a lackadaisical approach uh, to it but yeah you should be fairly low risk at this point so that shouldn't put you at any increased risk okay thank you all right thanks for calling a uh, couple of things to to follow up on that since it was about uh you know about coronavirus um so um what can you do? That's what everybody wants to know. What can we do right now? Incidentally, a lot of the information I get comes from the CDC website, so that's cdc.gov and nih.gov. You can go to the Internet and get all kinds of information, uh, good and bad, uh, but those are two very good sites that have ongoing monitoring. I mentioned that there are daily update, updates from these sites. Uh, if you're a visual person like me, there's lots of maps uh, and lots of ways to sort of keep up with it. But some of the things that you can do, this is a virus that is normally, uh, it occurs anywhere from 20 to 50% of the common cold. So coronaviruses have been around a long time. Uh, like many viruses, like the flu, they can change over time or mutate over time. And that's why we have to revaccinate with flu vaccine every year, just because it can change. A lot of these have animal reservoirs, which means that this virus can go back and forth between humans and some other type of animal. Um, so coronaviruses, uh, several different uh, mutations or, or types have caused serious illnesses in the past. SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome, is one of them. Um, so we know that this one is not the same virus type as, as SARS, but it is caused by, it does have a little bit of similarities to it. Uh, it's not quite, it doesn't look to this point from all the information we have worldwide that it is quite as serious as SARS was as far as uh, clinical outcomes. But for those individuals that are at higher risk, those are the ones, unfortunately, that are um, being affected the most. So um, 
things to to do. Uh, washing your hands uh, is a huge deal. Washing your hands with soap and water. You don't have to get fancy. You don't have to empty all the stores of, you know, all the alcohol wipes and preparation and all that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, if if you're not in the hospital, um, but those just washing your hands with soap and water, particularly before you eat, uh, after you've been in contact with different things, if you sneeze or cough, please cover your mouth. Cover your mouth because that can uh, those particles is how this coronavirus is spread. It's not quite as infectious as say measles or chickenpox, so those spread very easily throughout the air. They just float around in a room. Uh, this is just in those particles that people either cough or sneeze. So we're talking about a six-foot radius um, uh, after somebody coughs that it's there or surfaces that they've either sneezed or cough on that have those uh, have those liquid particles that may harbor the virus. So those are things to avoid. Uh, and again, if you're sick, uh, to keep from spreading the virus, stay at home, cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue, throw that in the trash, and then clean and disinfect frequently touched objects and surfaces. Uh, but if you're going through, I was just in an airport last week going to a meeting out in San Diego. Uh, I made a, I always make a habit of washing my hands after I've touched things. Try not to touch your mouth, your nose, or your eyes, which are the, the entry points for this virus. So those are you know just some general things that you can do to help prevent the spread and help prevent you from contracting it. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning and uh, taking your calls for whatever health questions that you have. Got some great questions so far. You can call us this morning at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to go to Michael, who's been patiently waiting for a long time. Thank you, Michael, for calling in from Hattiesburg. Well, I enjoy your program, whether I'm talking or not. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm sixty eight years old, and my blood pressure has been running in the upper one thirties over the upper seventies, which I know is above the ideal. Um, my doctor has been wanting to, wanting me to think about getting on blood pressure medicine, but I'm slender. I'm you know six four and 150 pounds. I don't have a lot of body fat. Um, I know one of the things is a diuretic. I, I mean, wouldn't that? I, I don't know how much fluid I have in me to get sucked out. Yeah, Michael. That's a, so. Blood pressure guidelines changed a few years ago, and, and this was based on some larger studies that looked at the risk of blood pressures that were below 
the readings that we normally in the past had said, hey, you need to be on a medication or you need to be on a medication plus some other things. And that number used to be 140 over 90. And in older individuals, too, it was maybe even higher than that. So you're young, uh, you know, with the new guidelines, less than 130, that's the top number, less than 130, and less than 80 on the bottom number would be our goal blood pressure. Uh, We also look at risk factors, other risk factors like diabetes, chronic kidney disease, um, things that might contribute with having a higher blood pressure of having a stroke, heart attack, or uh, cardiovascular disease. Um, now, treating it, this is the way I think of it, and then I've been treating hypertension a good while now. Um, I think about sort of a pyramid approach, and if you look at the bottom of the pyramid, uh, that's lifestyle modifications. Even in people who are slender, who don't need to lose weight, who are in an optimum weight, sometimes changing particularly what you eat can have big effects, particularly uh, looking to the DASH diet. That's not Mrs. DASH. It's dietary approaches to stop hypertension. And we know that in individuals who have been put on this diet, it's a diet high in vegetables and and, uh, uh, fruits, uh, sort of a Mediterranean-type diet. The major fat sources are nuts and uh, olive oils or plant-based oils, Uh, not a whole lot of red meat, uh, very very little uh, red meat at all, and then uh, a lot of fish and uh, particularly fatty fishes. So it's it's pretty easy to do for most people. It just requires a a good bit of planning. But if you do that, sometimes you can push your blood pressure down. You're not far from your goal, actually. Um, So, uh, you know, as far as medications, if you do... You know, if you do all that, say, for 6 to 12 months and see if it has an impact and you're still, you know, having that that elevated systolic reading, what you may want to do is to have a discussion with your doctor on an appropriate first agent. You mentioned a diuretic. Thiazide diuretics, hydrochlorothiazide or chlorthalidone are two of the most common. Uh, Those are very good blood pressure medications. They've been proven time and time again in multiple studies as a first-line good agent in most people. However, there may be other circumstances to treat somebody with something else. You also mentioned, you know, you don't have a lot of fluid on board. So, unfortunately, we've called these things, you know, we've called, called the, the diuretics uh, different things over the years. And we, it's not just about fluid. So the blood pressure effects of thiazide diuretics uh, are more than just pulling fluid off. In fact, after six to eight weeks of taking it, Most people don't go to the bathroom any more than they normally would. So they do work at the kidney level to reduce blood pressure in in ways that are separate from just getting rid of fluid. So it's not like there are other diuretics that you may be familiar with, people who have heart failure or other reasons to be on a fluid-type diuretic. Those are mostly the loop diuretics. Those do pull off a lot of fluid. But thiazide diuretics outside of dehydration states and those kinds of things really don't affect fluid status very much at all. So that's not the reason why we're treating it with that. But there are other things out there. There are calcium channel blockers. There are ACE inhibitors. There are angiotensin receptor blockers. uh, Lots of different classes of medications that once you get to that point that you can try. And if there's not a compelling reason, that's old uh, guide, hypertension guidelines, well, actually new guidelines to, uh, if, if there's not a compelling reason to choose one of those particular blood pressure medications based on other medical conditions, then you could pretty much interchange those to sort of 
pick the ones that are going to have the least side effects for the individual. Well, at 68, at, at what point does age come into the systolic going up? So, you know, we used to think that you just don't treat that. It, it is uh, very common to see that isolated systolic hypertension develop as we get older, particularly over the age of 70. So you're almost there. Uh, that is something, though, that we know now that is does contribute to an increased risk, particularly of stroke. So it's we used to ignore it, you know, particularly back in seventies, even in the eighties. Uh, that's not something that we ignore anymore. We do treat that. We do. We are as you get older, you do have to be sensitive to uh, getting the blood pressure too low to the point where you get dizzy. But that is something that needs to be treated. Okay. Thank you very much, Doctor Jimmy. You have a good day. All right. You too, Michael. Okay. Thanks for calling. Let's go to V from Waynesboro. Good morning, V. Good morning. My questions. Would you speak on um, the uh, pneumonia vaccine? I had one this year, and they said, remember the name, because next year I would need to take a different one. And would you talk about the shingles vaccine? Thank you. V, do you have diabetes? No. Okay. Do you have chronic lung disease of any kind? No. Okay, because that's important for me to know. Let's tackle the pneumonia vaccine first. So pneumonia vaccine, we mentioned it a little bit earlier on the program. So there are two types. There's one that we give a pneumococcal vaccine to uh, younger individuals. It's part of a routine pediatric uh, schedule. Uh, Prevnar is the the common name, or PCV13. There's another one that's a 23 uh, PCV23, and that's sort of the pneumococcal or, or pneumonia shot that most people are familiar with getting at age 65. Several years ago, it was recommended that in addition to giving that pneumococcal vaccine at age 65, that we also give the one that we give the pediatric patients uh, about six months to a year after that, or to give the 13 first and then the 23. Honestly, it was confusing with the schedule. A lot of people, you know, looked at it. After we looked at the data, after we started doing that for a few years, really didn't, we, we for people like UV, it sounds like, that don't have chronic medical conditions like diabetes or chronic lung disease, it's probably not, not needed to do that second one. So although they told you that, the most recent guidelines say that if you got that that pneumonia vaccine, the PCV23, you're probably good to go and you don't have to get another one at this point. Now, vaccination schedules change from year to year based on data, but right now you wouldn't need that PCV13 unless you were um, at increased risk. Um, Now, you see, you mentioned flu vaccine and shingles. Flu vaccine, you know, we recommend every year. There's always questions about a high-dose flu vaccine that is recommended in individuals who are over age 65. It's four times the normal dose, So, it, the, and the, the science behind that basically is that that helps your immune system recognize that a little bit better, uh, just because we know as we get older, our immune system goes down a little bit. Uh, shingles vaccine is to, of course, prevent, uh, prevent shingles. If anybody's ever had shingles, they usually don't want it ever again. Uh, it is very painful, and it, so the effects can last months after you get over the initial bout of it. Shingles is the same virus that causes chickenpox. So all of us, like myself, who got chickenpox back when we were young, that virus hangs around in our nervous system. And if our immune system should get weakened for whatever reason or if we're under a lot of stress, then it can pop back out, and it pops back out in these 
sort of band-like patterns all over the body. It can be anywhere in the body, but a lot of times it'll be on the the chest or the back. Uh, it can be extremely painful. So there there are two vaccinations. One that's been used since about 2005, 2006, and another since 2017. Uh, and those, uh, the, the one that's been most recently developed in 2017, the Shingrits, that's the one that uh, is recommended now. So, so over uh, 55, you have to check with your insurance company, but a pharmacist can help you out on all those things, V. So uh, check with them about that. But I would say the pneumonia vaccine, you probably don't need to get that second one. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think "Eh, maybe i'll try it myself some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it if you want to find out how to do those things listen to fix it 101 podcast everywhere